Today's podcast is sponsored by Novo. Novo is powerfully simple business checking. You're making something new with your business. To support you, Novo built a new kind of business checking. So get your free business checking account in just 10 minutes at novo.co slash gold. Today's near 350 point rally in the Dow Jones was not quite enough to offset a near 450 point decline from Wednesday. Same story with the Russell 2000. Down yesterday, gained over a percent today, but it didn't quite get back to even. However, it's a different story with the S&P and the NASDAQ. Both of those indexes more than recovered yesterday's sharp losses to finish the two days higher as more money continues to move into the beaten down tech sector. A lot of people are still convinced they're getting a bargain, they're getting a deal, they're buying these stocks on sale. They have no idea how cheap these stocks are likely to get. A lot of times too, when you see stuff go on sale, if you wait, it'll go on a bigger markdown and then eventually close out. And I think a lot of these tech companies are going to be on closeout sale where you can get much, much bigger discounts, not a 20 or 30 or 40% off sale, but when you have real clearance and that's when you get the big discounts, the 70, 80, 90% off, I would wait for that before I bought a lot of these stocks. What's really looking a lot more interesting to me than the U.S. stock market is the gold market. Gold had back-to-back gains on Wednesday and Thursday. It was up almost $40 on those two days. So gold was going up when the U.S. stock market was going down, and it continued to rally when the U.S. stock market went up. In fact, silver was actually outshining gold over the past couple of days. It was up better than 70 cents an ounce. But the investors in gold stocks, while gold stocks are rising, they were up 2% in general over the past two days they were mostly lower today and so they lost some of the gains from yesterday but still up about two percent but given the two-day rise and more importantly how good the gold chart looks gold looks very explosive it looks like it's headed much much higher we're still not seeing a lot of conviction in the gold mining sector. You still have gold climbing this wall of worry. A lot of people are still worried that rising interest rates are gonna harm gold. Those worries are unfounded and eventually will be discarded as people begin to realize that rising nominal rates are meaningless. It's rising real rates that count and real rates aren't even rising, they're actually falling. Real rates are negative, and they're more negative now than they were before the Fed hiked rates. In fact, speaking of yields, we did get a bit of a decline in bond yields over the past couple of days. Most of that decline happening on Wednesday when the U.S. stock market was getting clobbered, that caused some money to flow into the bond market. But the bond market surrendered some of those gains today, mainly on the 10-year. The 10-year yields were up a bit. The 30-year yield actually declined slightly, so that spread between the 30-year and the 10-year continuing to narrow. Again, as I mentioned on a prior podcast, none of this makes sense because if you look at the inflation expectations that are baked into the spread between regular treasuries and the tips, investors are looking for 2.5% inflation on average 
over the next 30 years. Now, as I said on my last podcast, I don't know what they're smoking, but inflation is going to be a lot higher than 2.5%. But even if you buy the consensus that inflation is 2.5%, why would you loan the U.S. government money at 2.5%? Because all you're doing is breaking even on inflation and you've got zero return. Who would want to lock up their money for 30 years and get a zero return? And of course, what about people who would be buying treasuries in a taxable account? Because you have to pay income taxes on your treasury yields. Well, if inflation is 2.5% and your pre-tax yield is 2.5%, by the time you pay taxes, you're under 2%, so you are losing money every year. Why would you want to lock that in for 30 years? Nobody would. So as I said earlier, nothing about the bond market makes any sense. It only makes sense when you realize it's completely manipulated. The price is a function of government intervention and nothing else. And if the government stops intervening, bond prices are going to collapse. In fact, I mentioned on a prior podcast that in the final week, when the Fed was supposedly wrapping up its QE program, it still bought better than 40 billion of US treasuries. Well, before I started recording this podcast, I took a look at the most recent data from the Fed, and this is for the week that ended yesterday, my birthday. I'm now 59, so this is my first podcast as a 59-year-old, and now that I'm a year older, maybe I'm a bit wiser. But anyway, the balance sheet in the week ended on my birthday, grew by another $8.2 billion. So the Fed supposedly stopped quantitative easing, yet somehow the balance sheet still managed to expand to a new record high of $8.962 trillion. Now, the Fed apparently is going to unveil a plan to start shrinking its balance sheet at its next meeting. In the meantime, the balance sheet that it claims it wants to shrink is still growing. I mean, why would you make something bigger that you're intending to shrink? Because now you're making the job of shrinking it more difficult because you're growing it first. It's like you've got this hole that you want to fill up, yet you keep digging it deeper, making the job of filling it up that much more difficult. You would think if the Fed's goal was to fill up the hole, the first thing they would do is stop digging, but they haven't. They continue to make this balance sheet bigger. It'll be interesting to watch this balance sheet over the next several weeks to see if it continues to grow because the bond market has been very weak, even though the Federal Reserve is still buying bonds. Imagine how much weaker the bond market's going to be when the Federal Reserve stops buying bonds. And of course, when the Federal Reserve stops buying bonds, that means the bonds that it owns, as they mature, a lot of those bonds are not going to be rolled over. Of course, those aren't even bonds. They're mainly bills, the short-term notes that they own. But as these bills mature, although they could have a bond in their portfolio that they bought a long time ago, or maybe that they bought more recently through QE that had a shorter duration left to maturity. But whenever these notes mature, regardless of when the Fed acquired them, it has to do with when the bond itself or note itself matures. But when these debt instruments mature, if the Fed doesn't roll it over in an effort to shrink its balance sheet, well, then the U.S. Treasury has to find a new buyer, has to find a buyer to replace the Federal Reserve. Well, where are they going to find an idiot dumb enough to buy those bonds? Because the Federal Reserve 
isn't buying bonds because they're a smart investment. It's buying bonds because it has a political agenda. It has an economic policy. It's buying those bonds without caring about how much money they lose on the bonds. I mean, they just create the money out of thin air anyway. What does the Fed care? They have a printing press. They don't care how much money they lose. But most Americans don't have their own printing press. You know, the government doesn't like competition, so they have a monopoly on counterfeiting. So the average person out there doesn't want to lose money because they just can't print up more to cover their losses. So why would a normal person who is adverse to losing money buy U.S. Treasuries at a yield that guarantees they're going to lose money? They won't, which is why bond prices have to keep on falling because yields are not nearly high enough to offset a lender for not only inflation, but all the risks associated with lending in this environment. And of course, to produce a positive return because people don't loan money to lose money. They loan money to make money and making money is in real terms. You have to collect a yield that exceeds the rate of inflation. You have to get paid inflation plus something else. Because if you're not going to get a positive return, then why bother making the loan do something else with your money? And in fact, it's the people who are currently doing something else with their money that the Treasury has to entice into buying the Treasuries that the Federal Reserve no longer wants to hold. Well, how do you entice an investor into buying Treasuries when they're currently buying something else? Well, you've got to make it worth their while. You have to offer a high enough yield because obviously if they're not buying treasuries now, it's because the yield is too low. The investors don't find them attractive. Well, how do you make a bond more attractive? Offer a higher yield. And that's exactly what's going to have to happen. But the problem is the economy can't withstand that. The stock market can't withstand that, which is why I keep saying that this rally doesn't have legs. This is a bear market rally. The stock market is going to roll over because the bond market is going to keep on falling. Yields are going to keep rising until maybe a stock market crash or the stock market falls low enough for the Federal Reserve to stop talking about all the rate hikes and about all the quantitative tightening. Even though it hasn't even started quantitative tightening, it's talking about it and the markets hear what the Fed says and they are reacting to it. Oil market also had a pretty big last couple of days. We were down over $3 today, but not nearly enough to wipe out the $5.70 gain from yesterday. The oil chart, as I said before, like the gold chart, looks very, very good. We are headed for higher highs in oil. I know we have $130.50 as the current high, and the market is going to take that out. Right now, we're at $111.50, but all of this spells additional problems for the economy as rising oil prices are effectively a tax on the American economy. And in fact, I'm going to talk a little bit about the harebrained schemes that politicians are coming up with on the federal and state level to try to compensate for higher oil prices and try to alleviate the pain at the pump with these government programs. But I want to just finish talking about the markets and some of the other economic data that we did get over the last couple of days because we got quite a bit of data. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. In fact, on the markets, I pretty much think I've covered everything except Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been rallying. It's continuing its bear market rally. As I'm recording this podcast, we're just under $44,000 for a Bitcoin Bitcoin, again, like the meme stocks and other beaten up tech stocks, is caught up in this bear market rally where people are thinking they're getting some kind of a bargain. They're overpaying. They're just not overpaying by as much as some investors had overpaid in the past or speculators. But any day, I expect the bottom to drop out of this rally and we're going to have some sharp moves lower in the stock market. But again, beneath the surface, I still continue to see flows moving into value-oriented stocks, dividend-paying stocks. Many of the stocks that we own in our portfolios continue to make new 52-week highs. We had more stocks today making 52-week highs. And these stocks might even be stronger but for the tailwind of U.S. stocks dragging them down because there is this attitude of stock market weakness And so obviously the stocks that are rising are still doing it against the backdrop of some negative sentiment for stocks worldwide, given what's going on in Ukraine with Russia, the energy and other commodity situation. But you can see beneath the surface this major rotation out of what used to work and into what's starting to work. And a lot of people are still holding on to the old narrative. That's why they're rushing to buy some of these tech stocks on this decline. And they have no idea that buying the dip isn't going to work because we have a lot bigger dips coming in the future. And the lows are going to keep getting lower till eventually the dip buyers become dip sellers and we eventually get a washout. But let me move forward and talk about some of the economic data that came out, in particular, the new home sales data that came out on Wednesday. I don't know why the markets continue to be surprised by weak data in the housing market, especially when it comes to new homes. But the markets were again surprised. The consensus was for 810,000 new homes to start and We ended up with just 772,000, so a pretty big miss. But not only did we miss the February number, but the January number, which was originally reported as 801,000, that was revised down to 788,000. Now, all of this makes sense that new home sales would be falling. Why? Well, number one, the cost of building a new home is skyrocketing. I mean, I already talked on the podcast about how much more expensive it is for me to build my podcast studio, just a shell, just a small building on my property, which is maybe 1,200 square feet, one room, no windows, right? Just a door, just so I can do my podcast. And the cost of construction is up about 60% over what the numbers would have been nine months ago. And this is Puerto Rico. So granted, I'm sure that prices are up even more here than on the mainland. But if it's up 60% here, it's got to be at least up 30% in the 50 states. So those are big jumps in construction costs. Now, when you're talking about homes that already exist, well, those don't have to be built because they're already there. They were built in the past when construction costs were much lower. But the new homes that have just been built and the ones that are being built now, their cost of building them is going through the roof. Not just the cost of the material, but the cost of the labor, the people that you have to hire to put those expensive materials together. So 
New homes are a lot more expensive than they used to be. And as prices go up, well, demand comes down because fewer people can afford to buy the new homes. They're more interested in buying a home that's already there where the costs were much lower to build it. But number two, it's not just that the cost of building a home is going up. The cost of financing the purchase is going up because most Americans, when they buy a new home, they're not paying cash. I mean, they don't have any cash. They got to go take out a loan. Well, mortgage rates are rising. They're following bond rates higher. We've had a big increase percentage-wise in mortgages. Now, the rates are still low from a historic perspective, but we have historically high home prices. In fact, they've never been this high. The only thing that's been keeping them affordable, in quotes, is these very low mortgages. Well, these very low mortgages are not as low as they used to be. Meanwhile, new home prices are higher than they've ever been. So affordability is collapsing. That's why these home builders now, if you look at some of these stocks over the last couple of days, getting clobbered because the products that they have to produce are going to cost a lot more money to make and their buyers aren't going to be able to afford to buy not only because there's a higher price point but because the cost of borrowing money is that much higher so i think the new home market is pretty much dead people don't realize that home construction is pretty much going to grind to a halt because it's going to be impossible to profitably build a home that most Americans can afford. Most Americans are gonna end up buying homes that already exist because they don't have to be built. The new homes are gonna have a very tough time competing with the homes that already exist. Now, of course, it won't fall to zero. There's always gonna be some demand that can be satisfied, but a lot of the demand for new homes will be completely eliminated because there's gonna be a segment of the population for whom new homes will be completely unaffordable based on A, the cost to build them and B, the cost of financing them because those costs have just started going up. The construction costs are gonna go a lot higher over the years and mortgage interest rates are gonna go a lot higher over the years. So all of this is gonna be a big problem for the home building industry, which of course is gonna be a big problem for that part of our economy that is dependent on new homes being built for economic activity, for jobs. So this doesn't bode well for a big chunk of the US economy, but it will bode well for the people who already own a home, because if you own a home and you wanna sell it, well, you're gonna have less competition from new homes that are being built because they're too expensive. And so the value of the existing homes goes up because the replacement cost goes up. Because when you look at a home, part of the way to value a house is what would it cost to replace it? What would it cost to rebuild it, right? Well, it would cost a lot more. And by the way, one thing that's gonna get more expensive is homeowner's insurance. Because if you have an insurance policy that's supposed to repair your house, let's say you've got fire insurance, and if your house burns down, well, the insurance company's gotta build you a new one. Well, the cost of building a new home is gonna be much higher, and so therefore, fire insurance premiums have to be much higher. The insurance companies have to collect more money in premiums because they know when a house burns down, it's gonna be more expensive to rebuild it. 
all forms of homeowners insurance have to get more expensive when repairing homes and rebuilding homes becomes increasingly more expensive. And that's just another burden that homeowners are going to have to bear along with other increasing costs of maintaining a home. So you can forget about that owner's equivalent rent number as being some kind of proxy for the cost of owning a home. It doesn't even come close to capturing the costs increases that homeowners are already experiencing and the even greater cost increases that they're going to soon be experiencing. Fortune favors the bold, the strong, and the brave. For your business to break out of everything holding it back, you need business checking as brave as you are. Introducing Novo Business Checking. Novo is powerfully simple business checking. And unlike the traditional bank model, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to your business to save you time and free up cash flow with seamless integration to Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks Online, and more. Sign up for Novo for free and join the community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses who've already found the customer customized business checking solution. So sign up for your free business checking right now at novo.co slash gold. Plus the Peter Schiff Show listeners can get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. So go to novo.co slash gold, novo.co slash gold to sign up for free. That's novo.co slash gold. Novo Platform Inc. is a fintech. It's not a bank. The banking services are provided by Middlesex Federal Saving, FA member, FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. We also got weak economic data today on durable goods. The February number was supposed to drop by 0.5%. Instead, it dropped by 2.2%, way below the low end of the consensus, which went from minus 1.5% to up 1%. If you strip out transportation, they were looking for a gain of 0.5%. Instead, we dropped 0.6, so a big disappointment there. And core capital goods orders, which were supposed to rise 0.4, dropped by 0.3 instead, although there was an upward revision to January from up 0.9 to up 1.3. So potentially we can call that one a wash. We did get those strong data when it comes to weekly unemployment claims. The consensus was for 210,000, which would have been a 4,000 reduction on last week. Well, last week's was revised up to 215,000, but for the most recent week, we got a 28,000 drop to 187,000 claims. That is the fewest number of unemployment claims filed since 1969. So this number, when it first came out, put a scare into the bond market. We saw a drop in the bond market immediately following the release of that number because this signifies a tight labor market and so therefore no reason for the Fed not to keep hiking rates. In fact, the tight labor market putting more upward pressure on wages and therefore it's an inflationary number and the bond market immediately dropped. Gold sold off pretty sharply. It lost almost its entire gains that it had at the time, but then gold managed to recover those gains and make new highs later in the day. We have a strong market in gold. It's not a runaway market yet, but people are looking to buy the dips. The smart money understands that gold's in a bull market. 
the dumb money just hasn't figured it out yet. And if you weren't convinced that inflation is a problem, all you had to do is look at today's PMI numbers. The composite numbers were out. Manufacturing and service numbers, they were both higher than expected. The manufacturing index was supposed to be 56.6, came out at 58.5. Service index was supposed to be 56, it came out at 58.9, but it's prices paid. That's the real story. These are some of the biggest increases in prices ever experienced through these surveys. So all across the economy, everybody is being hit with surging prices. This has barely begun. We've only scratched the surface on the price increases that consumers are in store for. But what I want to talk about now is some of the ridiculous policies that are being considered, not only in Washington, but on the state level, to try to combat this inflation problem, but which, of course, like all government solutions, will make the problem worse. Because the problem with government solutions is every government solution always involves more government. And therein lies the problem, because it's generally governments that are either creating the problem or exacerbating it. And then when you come up with a government program, it inevitably makes whatever problem they've either created or they're trying to solve worse. And part of the problem, too, is oftentimes government isn't really interested in solving problems. Its real goal is to perpetuate problems, because the bottom line on government is the problem that it always wants to solve is how to make itself bigger, because what governments want is to grow, meaning politicians always want their agency to be bigger. They want more power. They want more clout. They want a bigger budget. They want more bureaucrats under their control. So every government agency or department is incentivized to get as big as possible. And therefore, if you have a government agency that is charged with solving a problem, the last thing the agency wants to do is solve the problem because now it no longer has a justification to exist. What the agency wants is to make the problem worse. So now it has more of a justification because let's say you have a government agency that's supposed to eliminate poverty. Well, the last thing they want to do is make themselves obsolete. They don't want no more poverty because then, okay, we could shut down the the program. We don't need it anymore. Problem solved. No, they want more poverty. The more poverty they can create, then they can go back to Congress and say, look, look how much more poverty there is. We need a bigger budget. We need more programs because you put us in charge of solving poverty And my God, there's so much more poverty now, we need to be much bigger because now there's even more reason to have an agency committed to solving poverty. But nobody will ever draw a connection between the agency that's been charged with solving the poverty problem and the fact that that agency is creating the problem or exacerbating the problem that they were supposed to solve because the programs that they pursue end up creating more poverty. But as far as the government is concerned, that's a great outcome because if there's a bigger problem, then it requires a bigger government solution. But the only solutions that will work are less government. In fact, there are a lot of people who on social media want to criticize me because they say, hey, Peter, all you do is point out the problems. Why don't you ever tell us the solutions? I do. Maybe these people don't really listen to what I have to say, but my solutions never involve another government agency or another government program. I have free market solutions to government-created problems, and those solutions always involve getting the government out of the way. So I explain how a government program 
is creating a particular problem and how the free market will solve that problem if the government gets out of the way. But nobody in government understands this. And it's quite clear if you look at the proposals so far that are being floated around to deal with this inflation problem, particularly as it relates to gasoline. You have one Democrat in Congress who's got a plan called the Gas Rebate Act, and they want to give every American $100 a month to afford the higher price of gas. Now, what kind of harebrained scheme is this? Because where is the government going to get this $100 a month of extra money to send to every American? Well, they're just going to print it. They're going to get it from the Federal Reserve. They're going to run bigger deficits, which means they're going to have to create more inflation to solve the problem of too much inflation. Well, how are you going to solve an inflation problem by creating more inflation? You are not. You're trying to fuel a fire. You don't want to give people more money to buy more expensive gasoline. The idea would be, if gasoline is more expensive, have consumers cut back on their consumption, buy less gasoline, find ways to economize, to use less gas. That's what the free market solution is to high prices. It's find a way to cut back on consumption. But no, the government wants to give people money so they can keep consuming what's in short supply, driving the price even higher. But an even dumber proposal is for a windfall profit tax on oil companies, some other Democrat in Congress, and I I forget the name, but this guy wants to have a windfall profit tax of 50% on any of the excess profits that oil companies are earning because of these higher oil prices. And I'm not really sure like what oil price they're going to consider. Maybe whatever the oil price was before the invasion of the Ukraine and whatever it happens to be. And that increase in the price of oil, any profits that are attributed to that, 50% of them are going to go in a tax And then the government will use that revenue to send out checks to American families so they have more money to buy more expensive gas. Now, at least in theory, that plan isn't purely inflationary because the government's not going to get the money from the Federal Reserve. It's going to get the money from oil companies. But if you want more oil, if oil prices are high because we don't have enough oil, the last companies you'd want to tax are the oil companies, because if we're going to get more oil, where's it going to come from? It's going to come from the oil companies. Well, where are the oil companies going to get the money to develop oil, to develop alternative sources of oil from their profits? Well, if we tax their profits, if we diminish their profits, then we diminish the capacity of oil companies to make the investments in exploration and development that would increase the supply of oil. So we're actually adding to the problem by making it more difficult from the only people in the country who are capable of producing more oil, making it less likely that they will by making it more difficult by depriving them of their resources, but also sending them the wrong kind of message. We're sending a message, hey, don't bother to invest in oil and gas exploration because if your investments pay off and you get a big profit, well, we're just going to take it away with a windfalls profit tax. So why take the risk if the government is going to confiscate the reward? But also on the flip side of it, you're not only taxing the people who you need to produce more oil, but you're giving more money to oil consumers so that they won't have to cut back on consumption. So the government is incentivizing demand for oil while discouraging an increase in supply of oil, doing the opposite of what the free market would do. 
In a free market, when the price goes up, what signals are sent to the market? Consumers are told, use less. The price is high. Economize. Find alternatives. The message that producers get is prices are high. Pump more. Find more oil. Drill for more oil. Right? That's the message that the market sends. And that message works because it results in lower prices. But what message is the government sending with its taxes and its subsidies? It's telling people not to cut back on their consumption, keep buying expensive oil, here's the money to keep buying it, and the government tells oil companies, don't increase your production because we're just gonna tax your profits away. In fact, you're gonna increase your taxes right now, so even if you wanna increase production, we're taking away the money that you would need to do it. Right? Completely the wrong thing you should do. And it's not just on Capitol Hill where you have these boneheaded ideas, you have the same thing in the states. Look at what California wants to do. They've come up with this brilliant idea. Governor Newsom wants to give every Californian a debit card loaded up with $400 that that individual can use to buy gas. And in fact, the debit cards are tied to automobile ownership. So for each car you own, you get a debit card. Now it's a maximum of two per household, but of course, if you're a single guy and happen to have two cars, I guess you can get 800 bucks. But supposedly the money is to be used to buy gas, but I guess in theory, it could be used to buy anything. The same as those $100 a month checks that the US government wants to send out. They say it's for gas, but of course you could use the money for anything. And of course, any money that you get to spend on gas, that means it frees up money to spend on anything else. So the inflation is just generally spread throughout the economy. It's not localized to gas, but it is increasing demand. But again, California is incentivizing the wrong thing. They are giving people more money to buy gas instead of allowing the higher price to discourage people from buying gas and economizing. But again, where is California going to get all this money to give everybody 400 or 800 bucks? And there's no means testing. There's no income threshold. I mean, the billionaires in California are going to get their $400 debit cards too. But where is the money coming from? They're not raising taxes. So California is going to go deeper into debt, which means they are going to be loading up their residents with even more debt, which is going to have to be repaid in the future out of higher taxes. It makes no sense. And as California has to keep raising taxes because they're deeper and deeper in debt, more taxpayers are going to leave the state, which means the tax base keeps getting smaller and smaller, which means the burden keeps getting higher and higher on the people who are foolish enough to stay in the state. But these are solutions that will not work. Because first of all, the government is the primary reason that gas prices are going up. Government is creating all this inflation. And so the solution to the problem is not more government. The solution to the problem is less government. In fact, there are some really easy solutions. If the government is really concerned about businesses having to pass on higher costs to their customers, what they really should be doing right now is figuring out how to reduce the costs that those businesses are currently forced to absorb, not increase them. In fact, I just heard a couple of days ago, the SEC just announced these new requirements for public companies to comply with with respect to climate change. And the first thing I'm thinking of is, okay, another new big set of regulations that all public companies are going to need to deal with. Now they're going to have to hire people to administer these new regulations. It's going to cost them money to comply with it. Maybe they're going to require some type of changes that are also going to cost money. So you're supposed 
supposedly worried about cost increases for businesses, yet the government is imposing new sets of regulations that will drive those costs even higher. Because regulations, the cost of complying with them is built into the cost structure of every business and ultimately the cost must be borne by the customers. If I am a company and I manufacture widgets and the cost of making the widgets is $10, but also there's some government rules and regulations that I have to comply with. And if complying with those rules and regulations increases the cost of making those widgets from $10 a piece to $15 a piece, well, $15 is my new cost structure. I need to price my product from that cost. I need to make a margin on $15, not $10. So my prices are going to be higher. Now, what could government do to lower the price of my widgets? Eliminate those regulations. And all of a sudden, my costs go from $15 down to $10. I can now lower my prices. In fact, I'm going to have to lower my prices because all my competitors are going to have the same reduction in their costs because they're complying with the same ridiculous regulations I am. So that's what the government needs to do. The government should be right now coming up with all sorts of ways it can relieve businesses of the cost of complying with government rules and regulations. That is the low-hanging fruit. It doesn't cost anything to repeal regulations. In fact, it saves the government a lot of money because the government has all sorts of bureaucrats that it has to hire to administer and enforce all these rules and regulations. So if we eliminate all those rules and regulations, in theory, we can eliminate those jobs. The government can lay people off, which would be great because by the way, we supposedly have a labor shortage. We have all these jobs out there and businesses can't find workers. Well, how about if we lay off some of these government bureaucrats, now they can go to work in the private sector. They can actually do productive work instead of pushing paper for government. And in fact, what they're doing for government is counterproductive. They are actually getting in the way of productivity by making it more expensive and more time consuming for the private sector to produce stuff. So if we get rid of the regulations, not only do we make the private sector more efficient by reducing its costs, we free up all sorts of money that can be used more productively, that can be invested in plant and equipment, in training workers, in more efficient ways of producing things. It lowers the entire cost structure and consumers will benefit from a more efficient, lower cost private sector. But we also free up all these bureaucrats who are wasting their time driving up the cost of private industry. Now those workers are available to get an honest job. They can now be hired. They can join the labor pool and they can fill some of these open positions. I mean, maybe some of these guys working for government actually have some of the skills that are in short supply. So why not free up that labor that is now being wasted, administrating rules and regulations that make us less competitive, free it up and let the private sector employ these people. And by the way, that lets the taxpayer off the hook. Because every time a government worker finds a job in the private sector, the taxpayer no longer has to foot the bill. The taxpayer doesn't have to pay the salary of a private sector worker. It's absorbed by the company. But we do have to pay the salary of all the people who work for government. Now, of course, after they go after the low-hanging fruit of just repealing rules and regulations, then you have to go deeper. If you really want to have even more relief, you have to start cutting government spending. Now, that's a bigger 
fish to fry. And I'm not sure a lot of the politicians are willing to do that. I mean, that would be great if they really slash government spending, because if they slash government spending, then they can cut taxes because government spending is a huge burden on the economy. It's a cost that the economy has to bear. And all of those costs are embedded in our price structure. So if you want a lower cost curve, if you want to reduce the cost of running business and operating businesses, you have to make government smaller. And you can only make government smaller by cutting government spending. Now, nobody wants to do that. And by the way, the benefit of cutting government spending is we have smaller deficits. We have smaller deficits. The Federal Reserve doesn't print as much money to monetize them. So not only do we reduce the cost of business and business can now pass on those lower costs to their customers, but now we have less inflation. We're producing less money because we're running smaller deficits or no deficits at all. So that's how you fight inflation. You stop creating it. And if you want prices to go down, you figure out how to lower the cost structure for business. And basically, it's not the government doing something to lower the costs. It's just undoing what it's already done. Government is the problem. Government interposed itself into the economy, it ran up businesses' costs. It just has to get out of the way. See, it's not up to government to figure out how to lower costs. The free market will do that on its own. The problem is the government is in there increasing costs and the government can reduce costs to the extent that it's simply removing the added costs that it itself imposed into the economy with all of these rules and regulations that we would be better off without. 